Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Diana DePasquale, and today I'm talking to Thomas Bishop, author of Every Home a Fortress, Cold War Fatherhood, and The Family Fallout Shelter. This book is published by the University of Massachusetts Press as part of their Culture and Politics in Cold War and Beyond, and has been out just a few months. A little bit about Thomas Bishop that you should know. He is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Lincoln, where he joined the Department of History and Heritage in September of 2017. Before that, he was a teaching fellow in American history at the University of Sheffield and a part-time lecturer at the De Montfort University. He completed his PhD in American Studies and History at the University of Nottingham in 2016 and his research has been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the European Association for American Studies, and the Historians of the 20th Century United States. In 2015, he was the recipient of the Marcus Cunliffe Prize for American Studies from the British Association for American Studies. And in 2019, he was awarded a Kluge Fellowship at the Library of Congress to start researching his next project, on Social and Cultural History of the Atomic Workers in the United States. His most recent article on the history of the fallout shelter salesman was published by the Journal of Modern American History. And he has recently written for the, the Washington Post and the and Zuccalo Public Square. So, Thomas, hello, welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me, Diana, You're today. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what drew you to this uh, area of research in the discipline of American studies? Sure. So I've always been a massive fan of science fiction. And specifically, actually, when I was kind of doing my master's uh, studies at the University of Sheffield, during many hours when I probably should have been reading and writing essays, I got completely obsessed with American science fiction and specifically a lot of different kind of films and cultural products that were produced during the 1950s and 1960s, stuff like Doctor Strangelove, On the Beach, all these really happy stories that we can kind of engage with. But the one that I kind of really fell in love with was The Twilight Zone. And I remember when I was kind of going through the early episodes from uh, Monsters on Maple Street and mm-hmm. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and beyond, um, there was one episode that really, really stuck with me. And that was an episode called The Shelter, which came out in September of 1961. And it's one of these kind of classic Cold War science fiction parables given in half an hour to an audience of Americans who must have been terrified watching it for the first time. But the story is very simple. There's a dinner party held in this suburban household for the local doctor, Dr. Stockton. Um, And during this dinner party, when you see all these kind of very well-dressed, middle-class suburban Americas toasting the doctor's health, suddenly over the radio you hear the announcement that there's an unidentified object flying towards the the community and a suspected atomic attack is on its way. 
suddenly the dinner party descends into chaos. It turns out very quickly in this kind of lovely uh, twist that only one member at the dinner party has access to their own private fallout shelter, uh, <laughs> Dr. Stockton, who we're all toasting. And of course, at that point, he decides to seal himself away, uh, refusing access to any of his neighbours and even his best friend, and then engaging in these like really powerful, what I call shelter hatch talks. Who gets access to your space? Who are you going to save? Would you let someone else into your shelter if it risked your family? Um, as the doctor still, um, steals himself away, what we suddenly see is the community, this kind of quiet suburban community, descend into a mob. They start to physically try to force their way through the fallout shelter, as they do, and they burst the door open, ready to run down and kind of rip the family out. It's announced over the radio that it's all been a massive hoax and there's no attack coming at all. And of course, at that point, Rod Serling appears on the screen and in his kind of brilliant way, uh, talks about this idea that if American society is to remain civilized, we need to remember what, what it means to be an American, in, in effect. And following that, I was just completely locked on with this idea about how real and how ordinary people must have reacted to the prospect of nuclear war in such an intimate and kind of personal way. So that was kind of the impetus that they had me thinking about fallout shelters in at the beginning and since then it's just kind of developed into the PhD and then into the book as well. It's so fascinating. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we should take a survey of, uh, for those of us in the discipline of American studies, about how much of our research was um, motivated by watching television, specifically the Twilight Zone. <laughs> because so much of it is about um, the cultural history of the United States and what's going on at the time and our our, our fear, especially our fears uh, of what was happening at the time. That's a really great episode to um, to, to, to look at that, which brings me to, uh, the area of your book, which is towards the end. Um, it's this, this chapter that you have, uh, about gun thy neighbor, um, in your fifth chapter and this, the violence that is sort of, um, you know, just below the surface, um, especially the, 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 the scene that you described in the episode of the twilight zone about, um, these, these men being confronted with violence within their communities about protecting themselves, but also excluding people who, you know, will, over, you know, overrun them and uh, take away the sanctity of their, of their fallout shelter. If you could talk about that chapter uh, and this gun thy neighbor kind of idea that you flesh out more, that would be great. Also, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about in that final chapter is what I would describe as the most extreme and logical reaction that we might have to a government message that tells people that their individual homes are fortresses and their individual families are kind of military units that needs to be locked away and, protect, and protected in some form or another. And what I was really interested in this, and it's a kind of a piece that other historians such as, um, such as uh, Kenneth D. Rose talk about as well in their work, is what happens when you take this logic of individual survival to its kind of extreme conclusion. And what we're having here is a very palpable cultural debate that really is occurring around the kind of time of the Cuban Missile Crisis about if you had a private fallout shelter, is it your moral duty to, to make sure that no one else can get in? Or should you let the other bits, the other parts of your community into it as well? And it becomes this really fascinating and troubling conversation for many people. I remember listening to radio interviews that Rod Serling did when he's talking about the episode of The Shelter. And he says quite openly on the radio that he was worried and talking with his wife and family about if they should build a shelter or not and in the end they decide not to 
because the actual logical, philosophical understandings of what that space would mean for them was something they could never really get to grips with. So what I do in that chapter is I trace the kind of ideas of what it means to embrace an individual survivalist ethos. And what I find so fascinating is that once we get beyond the headlines of editorials for the Newsweek, Nations, that they review saying, this is America breaking itself apart. What I do in the book is I look at the individual um, families' reactions as much as I can, trying to get to this personal reaction to this gun by neighbor debate. And you find a lot of people not acting as kind of these survivalist violent units, but people who are very worried or concerned with what this actually might mean. Unsurprisingly, a lot of people didn't want to shoot their neighbor if they broke into their fallout shelter. And more importantly, you get these accounts of um, dads worrying about kids discovering guns in the Mm. shelter and asking these really awkward family questions. Um, I think I start the book and kind of I bring her up as well. Lisa Cady talks about when she spoke to her dad about could a friend from school come and spend time in the shelter with her. And she kind of talks quite extensively about at that time about this idea of, well, her dad saying no, and then discovering that her dad's got a gun within the shelter as well. So that's one of the things I'm kind of tracing within that chapter is the kind of how American people at the kind of the grassroots respond to the kind of prospects of violence they might have to inhabit in some form or another. It's interesting too that 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 occurs at the the tail end of the book, where and which is as as a result of the 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 United the the Eisenhower administration's failing to construct the community shelters, and the campaign switches from you know community protection and the administration's responsibility to provide this um, this protection and security that is foisted squarely on the, on the shoulders of American uh, fathers. After I read your book, it seemed like there were three sort of, uh, at least three points of entry um, or areas of focus that you um, look at. And the first one might be the marketing of the shelter by the Eisenhower administration and how they crafted these messages about safety and virility, individual responsibility, being the head of the household, um, but of course, the book has a lot to do with gender. Can you tell us more about how gender and specifically masculinity became such a huge part of the history of fallout shelters in the U.S.? Well, so I, think, I think it comes down to, the, to this central question that you brought up there, Diana, about this idea of what it means to market something mm. to a 1950s American Cold War audience. One of the biggest symbols that we're seeing the Eisenhower administration return to as a way to normalize um, and make people think that survival is in their grasp in some form or another is an image that they're also seeing on television during that time, in magazines during that time, which is this image of the white suburban family. And within this, we're seeing one of the images that I opened the book with is the image of um, Art Carlson, who appeared in Life magazine in 1961. And this is an image that I think is remarkable. Um, I'm going to describe it very quickly, if that's okay, which is this image of this uh, man with a kind of um, short back and sides, with a spade in his hand, standing very boldly. Next to him, it's got his wife and it's got his children arrayed around him. And it really reminds me of the image of the American Gothic, Mm. the painting, this recreation of this image of stability, strength, community, and specifically order during a time of disorder. And at the time, one of the most remarkable things is that the Eisenhower administration is dealing very closely with the fact that nuclear war is potentially the most disordered aspect or event that could ever occur in American society. 
privately in memos, Eisenhower's talking about the idea that if the hydrogen bomb drops, you're kind of having to horribly use bulldozers to move the bodies off the street. There is no order or stability during a nuclear attack. Yet to mark it and create a sense of order and stability, what they do is they turn to an image that many Americans are being told to be more familiar with, and that is this white, heteronormative, suburban, middle-class family. An ordered family relates in their minds to an ordered society in some right. form. And within that, masculinity becomes a really powerful part. Other historians, such as Laura McKinney, have talked about the role that women play during civil defence, and that work's incredibly important. But there's kind of a gap over the kind of, uh, kind of analogies that were used around masculinity, and especially the idea of tying the fallout shelter to a pioneer past of a log cabin or a frontier space. Um, this idea that Americans have kind of always encountered the unknown, and the most kind of common thing that's always occurred is this idea of creating and defending a home in some form or, or another. So what we're seeing Eisenhower doing just time is avoiding the kind of financially difficult questions he might have to deal with and saying mm-hmm. everyone can build a football out shelter because his vision of American society, or at least one that could be marketed, is a vision of American society defined by the white suburb. Which is a great um, segue into my next question of of some of what you argue in this book is about how many people were left out of the opportunity to build shelters, either due to the inequities in race or wealth in the form of homeownership. Uh, Can you speak uh, more to that part of the uh, part of your book? Of course, I think one of the most remarkable things that when I was kind of engaging with in the archives is that many administrators think that this image that they're creating here is what we would call, as you kind of said uh, previously, a a slam dunk when it came to kind of marketing in some Mm. form or another. But what we're seeing kind of quite critically um, developing, at least with certain aspects of the Eisenhower and the Kennedy administration, is this growing awareness that the image that they are creating is one designed to save only a few members of American society and predominantly those who are white and well off. What we're seeing within this then is a growing awareness or crisis that's growing both at an administration level when it comes to civil defence and also at the grassroots about what it actually means if you kind of preface a national security strategy around nuclear survival on only a few people. And within this, what we're seeing here is the abandonment um, of anyone who doesn't have access to private shelter spaces, who doesn't have access to their own home. So there's this huge problem the Kennedy administration has, partly due to the old um, racialized redlining policies around access to mortgages and home ownership, means that there is a huge portion of the society and population that are not going to be able to access private shelter space. And it really is something that Eisenhower kind of leaves as a hanging football for then Kennedy to pick up and then realize his administration simply can't contend with it in any form or another. And you do get a number of kind of prominent social commentators from I.F. Stone to Margaret Mead, even Langston Hughes, starting to talk quite explicitly about the idea that this is a vision of American society that seems to make nuclear war um, cosy for certain sections of society, such as the white and middle class, but largely abandons the inner cities and um, communities who don't have access to private housing to nuclear war. So regarding the actual purchase and the building of the shelter, the construction of it, and the ways manufacturers and um, let's call them enterprising hucksters found ways to talk <laughs> about the value of a shelter would add to uh, an individual's home or the construction, the assembly of these kits, you mentioned there were a lot of scams and some unethical sales tax tactics used by the shelter salesman. Can you 
uh, give us a little bit more insight into that? Yes, um, it's one of the, I mean, out of all the chapters in my book, The, the Shelter Salesman is, is actually my favourite one by a long way, because it's, it's a fascinating example of this kind of how disaster capitalism can emerge and how new businesses can react to um, events that are occurring kind of very quickly and very rapidly. So during this period, um, almost as soon as we're seeing the Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration start to talk about individual survival in some form, we see businesses trying to fill that gap between the intentions of the state and the actions of individual homeowners. Now, on one hand, you do have what we could call genuine fallout shelter salesmen who would take the government guidelines and try to provide people with the materials they would need to build a shelter, whether that's in the form of the actual kind of physical work of building out or converting a basement, or whether that's in the form of kind of helping people and coming around to inspect buildings that have already been built. That is a strain of business that we're seeing going on within this quite predominantly, but we're also seeing at the same time people who see an opportunity at this point to just make a quick buck. And we've got everything from people who are building swimming pools, deciding simply just to flip the design over and then start to offer that out to people um, as a way to kind of survive uh, and kind of build a new shelter for themselves. And we've also seen people who start to go around and offer low cost fallout shelters, stuff that could be mount, could be built out of wood or anything like that. And it's, and it's crazy. And you've also got this kind of, weird consumer classist element as well so you got the idea of building the best fallout shelter. and the one i found was an example of a fallout shelter salesman who wanted to pitch one which had a glass window so you could get your friends around to watch the mushroom cloud go up right. and within this i think i think the more important thing is these these examples are always i find quite amusing and entertaining but what it does it really does serve to delegitimize the government message because if the government is trying to sell this idea that individuals can build shelters and they've got the opportunity and then business might potentially help them with that final step. If the government, if the government can't trust business and they can't regulate the market in some form, and if people can't start to engage with fallout shelter salesmen and actually trust what they're buying, it becomes, and I think I talk about it with a second city sketch at the end of that chapter, yes. a laughing stock mm-hmm. and actually kind of stand up com- com- comedy routine that people enjoy because it, it becomes such a ludicrous prospect that someone would knock on your door and say for five hundred dollars i'm going to build you a bomb shelter and you go of course you can't do that and is this bomb shelter going to work and all of that stuff so i really enjoy the idea of the american public not buying into this illusion and of course you've got a few people who are buying shelters but one of the things i found so remarkable is just how shortly lived that market is and as the cuban missile crisis curbs away we see people simply saying i don't want to buy this image of survival. I don't believe that private enterprise can ever provide a viable solution to a problem as complex and vast as as a nuclear war. Mm. Uh, Even though it's not a fallout shelter, but you mentioned disaster capitalism. Do you see do you see contemporary examples of that with what we're experiencing globally with the COVID-19 crises that are happening all over the place? Yes, and it makes me very sad when I see it everywhere. Um, there was I, the piece I wrote for the Washington Post dealt with this in relationship to the kind of new sudden rise of COVID solutions, mm. um, and there was a lot of stuff we saw in the states about um, television, uh, people on television, especially some religious leaders or some right wing communities 
pitching products that they thought would protect you from COVID. And it was this immediate reaction that we saw, which again had incredible um, parallels to what went on in the 1960s of people trying to provide um, families and individuals with a solution that they could use to help deal with the current kind of COVID crisis in some form or another. And again, as a parallel with what happened in the Cold War, we're seeing um, the, Fed, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, step in to provide some regulation for it. But again, it's this kind of automatic urge of people to look to business um, for a sense of control in a world that's spiraling out of control. Mm. And that some businesses at that point are providing the sense of right. control for people who are feeling anxious. Um, and again, it's one of these things that seems, at least what I can see, to have died down a little bit at the moment but again with online social media platforms it's much more difficult to regulate in any way than it potentially was during the cold war but but again i think what's really interesting with the kind of current covid scenario is there always seems to be business stepping in where government isn't providing enough for people in some form and i think that's a really important thing to be aware of at the moment (laughs) absolutely i I, very important very timely to sort of think about this in relationship to what we experienced back then and and what we're experiencing now. Uh, Finally, can you tell our New Books Network audience more about your Kluge Fellowship at the Library of Congress on the social and cultural history of the atomic workers in the U.S.? Sure. So this was uh, my new project that I'm developing at the moment. And with that, I'm kind of investigating this idea of what we call the nuclear everyday. And I'm really interested about how ordinary people engage with uh, nuclear science and technologies on different levels. And within that, I've started looking at uh, kind of doing a broader, bigger cultural history of people working in nuclear power industries in the United States. And the way I'm going to be structuring that is rather than looking at the nuclear sector as one, one kind of singular Uh, function what I'm going to be doing with that is looking at the different elements that comprise the way that nuclear power is produced in a community so starting off with looking at the delivery men whose job it was to drive different nuclear materials um, from mining sites to factories to people working within the nuclear power stations itself um, whether whether it's chemical um, technicians or actually looking at what we call jumpers who are the nuclear janitors whose job it was to clean up and maintain the the, the, the facilities right through to the technicians and steel workers who designed the thing and all the way down to consumers and families in the community in which it lived. So what I'm trying to basically do with that next project is tell this history of nuclear power through the experiences of the people within their nuclear cycle itself. Um, so it's, go, it's something that I'm, I can see myself taking a very long time to do. Um, but I've got some decent material from um, the Kluge Fellowship, and I'm going to be kind of building that up quite extensively and starting off with this first big project, which is going to be about the janitors who are in charge of kind of maintaining and sustaining, nu- uh, sustaining and cleaning up nuclear power stations themselves, because no one's really done anything with them before. And- I think that nuclear power... Yeah, sorry. Uh, in terms of your methodology, are there is there are there archives within the Library of Congress with interviews of those people or any kind of ethnic, ethnographic research? How are you going to be engaging with like the with the histories of those people directly? Or well, this is the plan. Um, I'm going to be building up towards doing oral histories and doing some bigger studies, especially with digital databases and kind of doing a digital map of oh, wow. different sites where people will be engaging with and trying to reach out as much as problem. I'm starting with 
the litigation and the legal side of it. So starting okay. off with those who kind of had accidents and those who were engaged in kind of disputes with different nuclear companies, which the Library of Congress has the papers of someone called Leo Goodman, who was the lawyer for the Atomic Energy Commission. And I've been kind of looking at his papers to begin with. Um, and from that, I'm going to be looking at other records from the Nuclear Regulatory uh, Commission up in Rockville in Washington as well. But a lot of this is in development. And as kind of COVID makes access to archives more difficult, I'd say, at the moment uh, specifically, it's something that's going to be away away but I'm working on on it at the moment and I think something about nuclear janitors needs to be done no one's ever looked at um, their individuals Kate Brown wrote this amazing book on Pluto called uh, Plutopia on the Hanford nuclear site and within it she talks about the fact that we tend to view nuclear power as this almost classless society mm. as this kind of this but we need to pay very close attention in my opinion at least to those who are maintaining the core and actually maintaining the facilities itself whose stories have often been absent or missing from the historical record in right. some form or another. Wow. Um, that sounds fantastic. I want to uh, thank you for being my guest on new books in American studies, a channel on the new books, new books network. My guest today has been Thomas Bishop, author of every home, a fortress, cold war fatherhood and the, fa- and the family fallout shelter. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thomas. So much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.